If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, the woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the wound that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. In these verses, we see the power of God on display through Jesus. And if you've read much of Luke's gospel or have been here for our series through Luke, you know this is a constant theme in this book. And to some degree, it needs to be the constant theme. It needs to be something consistent that we see over and over again because the truth is we are prone to forget it. Uh, intellectually, we know Jesus reveals the power of God, that God works through him. But spiritually, we do not know that as the reality of our lives most of the time. God will save a person that we thought was unsavable. He will deliver us from a situation in which we thought there was no deliverance. And we say, I can't believe that he did that. Why, why do we not believe? It's because we don't believe. It's because somehow we have disconnected from what we know, what we've seen, what we say we believe in the Bible to how we actually live in the real world. As if somehow God did things different back then than what he does today. Like a dragster trying to accelerate down the track with his parachute open or as a ship trying to sail the seas with its anchor dropped into the bottom. We tend to live with spiritual drag keeping us from moving forward because of our forgetfulness of God's power. And Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus to remind him, cut the chute and pull up the anchor. You see, we're no different than anybody else. We're no different than, than anybody else because we're all people. We all have this same problem. And Luke is writing to Theophilus' friend telling him, look at, look, look at what Jesus was like. Everything you heard about him, everything that you believed about him is true and here is proof. And so just as Theophilus first read this book, so also us today as we read through this passage, we need to believe again, or perhaps you're here and you need to believe for the first time that Jesus wields the very power of God in our life. And Luke shows us this in two very specific ways. First of all, he shows that Jesus wields the power for salvation, the power for salvation. 
Listen again to that under, the understated drama of verse 14 when we're told that Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. As we think about Jesus' power to save, we specifically see here first his power for spiritual liberation. His power for spiritual liberation. One of our favorite family games is uh, a game called Would You Rather? And that can either be the official kids version that has cards and questions and uh, I'm not sure if we actually have played the game. We just carry the pack of cards around and, and ask the, the questions. Or this could be the unofficial version where we're just sitting in the car, we're waiting for something to happen, we're waiting for dinner to come and we just start asking off the top of our head questions. Would you rather do this or would you rather do that? I think my boys like it the most when we play an even more modified version in which we pull out the big book of superheroes and begin asking, who would, rather, who would you think would rather win, this guy or this guy, as we move through the book and challenge uh, the, the powers and abilities of people that have of no consequence in the real world. But it's fun. Well, one of the questions that came up years and years ago between, I think it was actually just Melinda and I, is would you rather be unable to hear or unable to speak? Would you rather be afflicted with deafness or muteness? In order to answer any of those would you rather questions, you have to stop and think about what would life be like in that situation. So if we're asking our kids, would you rather eat a bowl of worms or drink a cup of beetles or something gross like that? You've got to think about, oh, what's going to happen? Stop and think about, though, what would it be like to be unable to speak? Uh, the, 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 that's what, that's what the, the implication is here because most of us don't have that problem. Most of us speak freely, speak abundantly, speak more than we should most of the time. And yet here's a man who was unable to do that, not from some physical handicap, but as the result of demonic possession. What would that be like to be able not to speak? This is not just a boy, this is a man. He's likely married, he has children, he cannot look to his wife on a Valentine's Day if they had such a thing and say, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm thankful that God has brought you into my life. He cannot look to his children and say, I am proud of you. He cannot stand in the synagogue and sing praises to God or read from the Torah. He cannot use his mouth the way that God has designed it to be used. And I think that's why the demons would afflict him in this way. You know, it's, we see lots of examples of the way demons afflict people, but notice that God has specifically designed us to be a speaking people. I mean, we can, we can train chimps to do sign language, but they're never going to talk like us. They're never going to communicate like us. Dolphins can chirp and whales can sing, but they're not speaking beings like we are. God has designed us to be a speaking people. Whether you've read the Bible for five minutes or 50 years, you go through, begin even now flipping through the pages in your mind's eye and you will see over and over and over again, not just instructions about, but exhortations to open our mouths and use them for the glory of God, to use them for the building up of his people. So when a demon desires to thwart God's plans, an easy way to do that would be to, to hinder the communication for which God created this man, to stop him from giving praise to God the way that he should. You see, we're told not simply to think nice thoughts about God, not to simply in our hearts praise God, but to open our mouths and declare his praises because God is more glorified when the overflow of the joy we have in him comes out of our mouths and spreads to those around us. It's the reason why we enjoy spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and people come to salvation 
salvation. It's why we can encourage and build one another up. It's when I hear little girls behind me belting out things like, all I have is Christ, and it brings joy to my heart and tears to my eyes. This is what we're designed for, and Satan has sought to thwart that plan by silencing this man and making him mute. But Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and suddenly he removes this demon. Now, I, I read this and I say understate it because, you know, in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, I think there's a Son of God movie coming and I don't know what's going to be in that. Usually if it's Hollywood, it's, it's no good. I know there's a Noah movie that looks in, incredibly ridiculous, but nevertheless, if this was depicted in the movies, it would be shown as some great struggle. It, you know, it, it, would, it would be, you know, the guy twitching as, as if the, 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 the demon literally had his hand around the guy's throat and, and you may even see some light come out of Jesus' hand or, or, or something happen and the guy, Luke doesn't say any of that. He's just like gone and the guy's talking again. And, and I think Luke is not trying to show us that this is not an important thing or that somehow this is not a terrible thing that's happened to this man. He's trying to heighten the power of Christ. He's trying to show this is nothing for him to just wave this demon away, just to banish him to be gone with the word and to restore this man's ability to speak. It is the immensity of the power of Jesus that he is showing, power for liberation. Because here's the reality, though Luke is telling us something that actually happened. It's not made up. It's not an allegory. It, 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 it's not a metaphor for, 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 for something bigger. This man had a demon that caused him to be mute and Jesus sent it away that he might speak again. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, it is here to teach us something more than just Jesus' ability to command the demons. It is here to show us about Jesus' ability to save, to liberate from sin that exists in our own lives. Every healing in the Gospels is there to point us towards that reality. It's not just a physical illness that is our problem. It is not even demonic affliction that is our problem. It is the sinfulness of our hearts that lies at the core of our problem with God. And Jesus has the power to liberate us from that sin just as he does this man from this affliction. So if we are a Christian, we read the story of this man in one sentence and we say, this is our story. This is our story. We may not have been afflicted by a demon. We may not have been physically mute. But our liberation was just as real and more powerful nonetheless. For we were afflicted by sin. We were under the sway of Satan. Prisoners of our own sinful desires. Though made in God's own image. Owing him all that we have in this life. We failed to give him thanks or praise as we should. In fact, Romans 1 says that our mouths are stopped. We do not give God the honor as we should. And we are incapable of doing anything about it. I mean, if I was this guy, I would have seen every doctor. I would have been to every guy I thought could have cast out a demon to get rid of this affliction. I can't imagine this guy did anything less. Nobody wants to go through life like this, but he couldn't do anything about it. Nobody else could do anything about it. He needed God just like we did. Jesus came and he broke in and he liberated us from our life of sin. He powerfully reversed the course that we were on, turning us from a path leading to death and hell to one of life and salvation with God. He opened our mouths that we might speak, not with crassness, not with vulgarity, not with cursing, but with praising and blessing to the living God and one another on our lips. And he still does this today for all who call to him in faith. This is why the response that we should have to what God has done in our life should be the first response that we read about in this passage. We should stand back and marvel at the work of God 
through Jesus Christ. We should stand back and be in awe at his power to liberate us from our sin. But notice the saving power is not a one-time show. Jesus doesn't just come on the scene and help us out a little bit and move on. No, Jesus has a continuing work. He has a continuing work in our lives. And that's why we see not just, not just a power for spiritual liberation, but a power for kingdom domination. A power for kingdom domination. Now, as usual, if you read any of the Gospels, Jesus' ministry has a mixed reaction. Immediately, some of the crowds denied Jesus was a man sent from God, and others wanted more proof. If you just give us a clear sign that he's from God, then we'll really know. Luke says, verse 15, some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others attest him, kept seeking from a sign from heaven. Jesus is actually going to deal further with those asking for a sign. We're going to look at that uh, next Sunday morning. But the real thrust of his teaching here is for those who accuse him of doing ministry in the power of Beelzebul. Now, you may not know it, but this is actually one of the most wicked things that anyone ever says or thinks in the entirety of the Bible. It reveals the sheer blasphemy of the hearts of those here. Because you see, Beelzebul was the name for a pagan deity in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's attributed to a lot of different things. We see it showing up in, in other secular literature the same time the Old Testament is written. And by the time Jesus is here on the scene, the Jews use this as a name to identify either a chief of demons or even Satan himself. So here are these people seeing the power of God in their midst and calling it a display of the power of Satan himself. They say Jesus isn't a man sent by God, but an imposter casting out demons by demonic power. What an amazingly depraved thing to say. And this is not the last time that it happens. Later in chapter 12, Jesus will zero in on the, the sheer profanity of that charge against him. And it's worth of hell itself. But here, here he basically shows that people are foolish and ignorant to even make such a charge. Notice what he says, verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided house falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. What sense does it make that Satan is casting out his own demons? What sense does it make that he's, he's brought silence to this guy's throat, his mouth, given him unable to, to speak words of encouragement or praise to God, and then come back and reverse this thing that he has done? Surely you don't think that Satan is undermining his own kingdom. This is all what Jesus is saying. This doesn't make any sense, he's saying. But then he goes on the offensive. He says, let's assume for a moment, though, that you're right. Let's assume for a moment that I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Then what about your own people? What about your own sons? What about your own father, followers who go around casting out demons? By what power do they cast out demons? That's what he asked in verse 19. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Now, apparently, there were other Jewish men in Jesus' day going around casting out demons. And we don't know if they were um, something akin to Apollos, who we see in Acts. He receives John's baptism, but then he leaves the area, goes out to the Gentile world, and he doesn't know anything about Jesus or the, or, or, or the fulfillment of what John was preaching. And so he's still preaching zealously John's baptism. And some Christians take him aside and say, hey, that, that, whom, that the one whom John was pointing to has come. And they tell him about Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and being baptized in his name. And he says, well, Yes, I want to believe. And he gets baptized and he goes off better. There could be legitimate Jewish men, godly men, who are trying to cast out demons for God. Or they could be complete charlatans. They, they could be like the people that you see on Trinity Broadcasting Network, putting, putting on a show. And so the, the, but the point is, it doesn't matter. The point is, they've never looked at their own sons, their own followers, and said, you guys shouldn't be doing that because that's the power of Satan casting out those demons. And so what Jesus says here is, your own children, your own sons, your own followers will be your judges. To quote one of my college professors, Jesus has hoisted them on their own petard. He's used their own argument against them and showed them to be inconsistent, contradicting themselves. And then he drives home the point in verse 20. If you've been right about them, then you've been wrong about me. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, and I love what he does here. He uses, in talking about the finger of God, he uses the same expression. You go back this afternoon, you read Exodus. You read the opening chapters, and the same expression, the finger of God that the magicians in Egypt use to talk about the Yahweh, the Lord God's, putting in the place the, the, the demonic gods worshipped in Egypt by the plagues sent upon them. They say, the finger is God, of God has been put upon us. Jesus uses that same expression to say he's doing the same things to demons in his day. The same power that was wielded by God in the Exodus as he was redeeming his people is now being wielded by Jesus as he casts out these demons. And it is a power that dominates. It is a power that invades the kingdom of another and takes over. That's the imagery of verse 21. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. We've all seen that the, the television shows where you know somebody is uh, is the you know the, the the king of his castle and he you know whether it's a, a, a drug lord or whether it's a you know a guy in a police whatever it is but he's in charge and then a bigger dog comes and suddenly he's not the big dog anymore. Some of you saw this at school with bullies. You would have a guy that would that would kind of bully the, the class, but then you get a transfer. You get a bigger kid who's not going to be bullied, and so, suddenly this guy is not hot stuff anymore. Suddenly he's not bossing anybody around. And Jesus says, you need to understand that, that Satan has held on to his kingdom. He's been the big dog. He's been the big cheese. He's been the guy that he, that, that, that he, at least in his mind, is running the show. And that's all coming to an end. That's all coming to an end through my ministry. Do you realize that Jesus is not just, he's not just coming to hold the line. He's not just come to set up a defensive position. Jesus has come as a conquering king. Jesus has come and he is one who was on the offensive. He is, he is taking the battle to the front lines of the enemy and he is winning. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Now all of you have either seen Robin Hood or Lord of the Rings or some other medieval show and, and, and you've seen a castle under a fight, right? How do you employ 
the gates of a city. Do you, do you launch them out of the castle into the enemy? No. They're defense, right? That you, you, you close those gates of the castle or the gates of the city to keep out the bad guys. They are a defensive weapon. And listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not just here to build my castle and, and to, to little by little build it up or to, or to hold the line against, uh, against Satan attacking. No, 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 no. That's the opposite of what I'm here to do. Satan has built up his kingdom and I am here to tear it down. Satan has filled his kingdom with the captured souls of men and I am here to liberate them and to dominate him. Jesus says, I am here to tear down those gates, to triumph over my enemy and establish my kingdom on the burning feeble rubble of his defenses. Jesus may look like any other man standing in the crowd before these people, but he is so much more. He is God in the flesh. And he says, there is no power on earth or in hell that can stop me from advancing my kingdom. Well, what does that give us as his people? It gives us hope. It gives us hope. We have hope, number one, that our salvation is secure in him. If, if Satan himself cannot stand in Jesus' way, but is trampled over as he goes and establishes his kingdom, then, then whatever else is going to threaten to take us away from God? What is going to take away our salvation? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Nor can that enemy do us any real harm. You say, well, it feels like real harm. It feels like harm when, when I, I'm tempted and I give in or when I, I experience something like Job and suffering and affliction comes my way when I'm trying to be godly. That's harm. It's painful. But guess what? The most important thing is this. Satan doesn't have any touch on your soul. He may kill you, but he's just sending you to heaven a lot quicker than, than maybe you wanted to go. And I guarantee you that when you're there, you're not going to care. A couple of years ago, I preached at my grandmother's funeral. And, and I thought that, you know, uh, it would, you know my, my parents were a little skittish. They thought, I can't believe Grandpa asked you to do that. You know, it's like, it's good. I want to do this. I, I, I'm happy to do this. But I thought I would kind of get the one big cry out ahead of time. And I never did. And, and, I, and so I'm, I'm, I'm literally gripping the pulpit, trying to make it through this sermon, trying to make it through this sermon. And, and it was all done and over. And the thing that really got to me, because my grandfather being the golly man that he was, he said, I, you know, I, I don't want it to be this big downer. It's a celebration because she's in heaven. She, she has gone to her just reward by faith in Christ. And so as we're singing these songs and hymns of praise, the thing that got me was this once feeble, sick woman who had been my grandmother and loved much standing before the throne of God as described in Revelation 4 and 5. And that's when I lost it. Because I thought, here we are down here, mourning her loss, grieving that she's not here, and she doesn't care a lick. She's not missing us at all because she is before the throne of her king and her savior. And we need to understand that, that we will get pummeled in this life. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because our soul is secure by the conquering king, Jesus Christ. He has liberated us from sin, from its power, from Satan, and he is dominating that king, kingdom, establishing his own godly kingdom, and we are secure in its gates. Nevertheless, we still live in this life. There is still the, the, the nitty-gritty of day in and day out. And here what we see 
in the rest of this passage is what we can expect when we have experienced the power of salvation that Jesus has. In other words, what we see is the evidence of his salvation in our life, the evidence of salvation. So here we're wondering, what does it look like to have the power of Jesus in our life? Practically speaking, what is the experience of his work in our salvation? First of all, it means that we will experience a heart transformation. We will experience a heart transformation. Beginning at verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Here's what you need to understand. Even though all of these healings are a picture and a help in our understanding salvation, not everyone that was healed or helped by Jesus was saved. We see that most clearly in the healing of the ten lepers where only one actually comes back to give thanks to Jesus for what has taken place. But also here, Jesus even warns having a demon taken away is not enough. It's not enough. And he opens up this small vista onto the spiritual realities of demonic activity and he tells us something about their abilities and their habits. But what's the point? What's the takeaway? Well, he's already told us he has power over them, but the real question is, does Jesus have power over us? Now, on one level, the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, he is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. But there's another, but on another level, the answer may be no. Have we bowed our knee to him? Have we yielded to his authority? Have we invited him in to be the king of our life? Or are we resisting futilely against him? Let me ask it another way. Where are you looking for redemption in your life? Who or what is the source of your salvation? Who or what is your Savior? Most people, when they begin having problems, start looking inward. They start looking inside for help. And that's not surprising because that's the message of our culture. Believe in yourself. Well, I've tried that. It doesn't work. There's not much to work with here. I need an outside source. I just look into myself, I will fail over and over again. And very often, that's what we do. We have problems and we start by, I just need to get my act together. I just need to clean myself up and be presentable. I might even call it to God for help, but then I begin trusting in myself. And the larger problem, Jesus said, is this. We may get rid of one problem, but we might just be given another problem in its place. Now, it might literally be demonic forces, but it doesn't have to be that. We might trade the sin of drowning our sorrows in alcohol for the sin of fearing what people think of my life. I got to get sober because I don't want people to look down on me. I don't want people to, to think that I'm less than them. I don't want people to, to have pity on me. So what are we doing? We're trading the sin of drunkenness for the sin of pride. We're, we're, we're trading escapism for the fear of man. Both are sinful and both are going to lead us to crash and burn in our lives. Do you see how easy it was to do, though? We thought we were doing something good. We thought we were working hard. We were, on, we were on a path to recovery. But the means of our recovery was not recovery. It was trading one problem for another. 
Jesus is telling us here, unless Christ is the one bringing about the transformation, there will be no lasting salvation for us. The sin of our heart is removed, but more sin may take its place unless Jesus himself comes and fills the void. And so Phil Riken is right when he says this, moral reformation without spiritual regeneration leads to demonic domination. I want to say that part again. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration leads to demonic domination. He goes on, people who try a little harder to live a little better need to know this. It will never work. In order to experience real and lasting spiritual change, we need something more than personal advice or a self-help program or a recovery group. Not even casting out a demon is enough. What we need is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus has promised the Father will give to anyone who asks. Jesus alone has the power to give us a true transformation in our heart, to bring about true spiritual change in our lives. And how does that transformation come about? What does that look like? Jesus says that part of the the evidence of our salvation is not only seen in the fact that we have a heart transformation, but that we experience blessed submission. Blessed submission. When we look at verses 27 through 28, it might seem like we're on to something totally different here. But notice at the very beginning how Luke ties this together. He says, verse 27, as Jesus said these things, so it's right on the heels of his teaching, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't run around saying that to a lot of people. Okay, in fact, I've never said that to, to anybody. And frankly, I'm not sure people want to be thinking about their grown children emerging in, from them and clinging to their bodies in this way. So what in the world has got into this lady? Well, she's actually complimenting Jesus by complimenting Mary. Okay, so, so what, what, she's, what she's seen is this, this demon driven out by Jesus. She's seen this man's voice restored. She's probably one of those who stood back and marveled at what, was taken, what had taken place. And then she heard him tangle with these wicked men who tried to say he was an agent of the devil. He, she, she saw Jesus completely show the faulty thinking that they had. And to top it all off, then Jesus peels back the realities of the spiritual realm and gives this wise insight and application of the mysterious going-ons in the demonic world. And after all of this, the woman just burst on a spontaneous praise. And she, she shares this common mindset of the ancient Near East, and that is this, if a, 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 if a son is great, then the woman might be great as well. So, so, so if, if the child grows up to be somebody, that retroactively makes the woman somebody. So by blessing Mary, she is blessing Jesus. And Jesus does not so much contradict her, but point her out to what real blessedness is. It, it, it's not that she had me. He says, verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says this is, this is why Mary is really blessed. Not just because she was my mother, not just because she gave birth to me, but because she, she's going to have faith in me. Because she has faith in my father. She can't see it now. It's unclear to her now. But one day she's going to see what having birth to me and raising me was all about. She's going to understand what my teaching is all about. Mary is blessed because she heard the word of God and kept it. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. 
Because so, so very often we, we tend to maybe exalt Mary above what, where she should be exalted, how she should be exalted. But do you remember what she said when she found out about giving birth? Let it be according to your word, O God. Even her willingness to give birth to the Messiah was obedience to hearing the word of God proclaimed to her. What that means is this true blessedness that Jesus is talking about is open to each and every one of us here today. All of us can be just as blessed as Mary was if we hear the word of God and keep it. And as I was thinking about this, you know, the elders have worked really hard to try and build a church around the word of God. It has given prominence in this time gathered here as, as parts are read in multiple places in the service, as it is prayed over. We have classes where it is unpacked. We gather together in the evenings to discuss God's word. We encourage you to, to read through it and to discuss it on your own during the week. But here's the thing that you need to understand. It doesn't matter if you show up to, to all of that and do everything. It means nothing if you do not believe and obey. If you do not believe and obey. Because no one got saved because they could pass a theology exam. You understand that, right? Nope, nobody, got, nobody got saved because they, could, because they passed with a 4.0, a Bible survey class. It doesn't work that way. But lots of people, lots of people came to have a 4.0 in a Bible survey class because they had faith in Christ for salvation. And the evidence, the fruit of that salvation that they experienced was a hunger, a desire for the word. And that was seen not just in their knowledge, but in their keeping of it. This is why James is warns, uh, provides a warning to us in chapter one. He says, we cannot simply be hearers of the word. We must also be doers of the word. It's not just enough to sit here and listen to a sermon week in and week out. It's not just enough to get up and do a devotional time week in and week out. Are you believing what the Bible says? Do you believe that it's true? And the measure, the mark by which you really believe it's true or not is whether or not it affects how you live, whether or not you keep God's word, whether or not you obey it. Salvation does not come by obedience to God's word. Salvation comes as we throw ourselves at his feet, begging for mercy to have our sins forgiven, believing no one else can bring us to God because of our sins. But the fruit of that salvation, the evidence of that salvation, is that the spirit begins taking up residence in our lives and he begins to change us as we hear the word of God and we believe. Why? Because this is the weapon of Christ's kingdom. We said that he's on the offensive, that he is tearing down the strongholds of Satan. He is batting down the gates and invading and setting up his own flag. And the way that he does that, the way that we participate in that, is not by building bunkers or stockpiling munitions or carrying around brass knuckles for Jesus' sake. No, it comes when we take up the sword of God's word and allow the spirit to guide our hand in wielding it. In that way, sin is defeated, Satan and temptation are overcome, and the kingdom of darkness is trampled as the banner of Christ is raised in our lives and in the nations. The Bible calls itself the sword of God in Ephesians 6 and in Hebrews 4. It is an unbreakable sword. 
that has the power to cut past every deceit of sin, every lie of Satan, and every hardened conscience. So this is where true blessedness lies. This is where the fruit of salvation is made evident. It's do we or do we not follow after Mary's own example and hear the word of God and keep it. Do we hear the word of God and keep it? So very often in our lives, we sit back and we read stories about this and we think about the Bible. And again, there is a kind of distance from it. We believe that it's true. We have a hard time connecting the dots to our lives today. But just this past week, I was reminded about God's mighty power and reading about a young man who grew up a devout and committed Muslim who heard of Jesus Christ, came to believe he really raised from the dead, and renounced all of his previous life to become a Christian missionary instead of a wealthy Islamic doctor. That's impossible with men. Never going to happen. I could sit down and meet with somebody for week after week after week after week. I'm never going to change his mind. In fact, I might get punched once or twice as I criticize after he knows that I'm a friend, the Koran and Muhammad. But that's nothing for God. It's nothing for God because in Christ there is power for salvation. Not just salvation in an abstract sense. Not just salvation at the end of our life, but salvation in the here and now over every sin, every temptation, everything from our past that, that seeks to, to, to weigh us down and make us feel guilty. In Christ, all of it goes away as his kingdom advances across the battlefield of this world. Father, we are so thankful for that being true. We are so thankful that we need not fear anything if we are Christ's people. That there is no sin, there is no habit, there is nothing that can stop us from hearing your word and obeying, from feeling the fullness of fellowship that we have with you. Father, help us to rejoice not only in the salvation that we have, but in the, the way in which it is applied in the nitty-gritty of life, the way in which we are called to live and serve in the here and now. Father, in everything, may Jesus be seen as Lord and Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen.